This comet is what we call a planet killer. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week we talk to the creator of Don't Look Up, a movie about humanity spectacularly failing to address one very big problem. It's somewhere between six and nine kilometers across, so it's big. It would damage the, the entire planet, not just a house. This massive meteorite is about to end all life on Earth. Will the people in charge take the urgent action needed? Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence play the scientists that have discovered the threat. Meryl Streep is the US president who, in your standard Hollywood movie, would be counted on to save the Earth. You cannot go around saying to people that there's a 100% chance that they're gonna die. You know, it's just nuts. An allegory about climate change and a biting satire on politics and the media. It's Oscar-winning writer-director Adam McKay tells Radio Davos why he felt compelled to make Don't Look Up. I had this moment where I realized the climate crisis, which I always thought was very serious and something we have to deal with, but I always kind of thought it was 50 years away, 80 years away for my grandkids. And I started reading this and going, holy... God, this is now. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and talking climate change, science denial and so much more with the creator of Don't Look Up, Adam McKay. Are we not being clear? This is Radio Davos. We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Imagine discovering a comet the size of Mount Everest is hurtling towards Earth and will kill us all. That's the premise of Don't Look Up, an Oscar-nominated movie that was intended as an allegory for climate change disaster. On this episode of Radio Davos, we talked to Adam McKay, who wrote and directed the film. To lead us into that interview, here's a clip with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence's characters trying to explain the situation to Meryl Streep's President Orlean and her even more revolting Chief of Staff, Jonah Hill. Using Gauss's method of orbital determination and the average astrometric uncertainty of 0.04 arc seconds, we, we then asked. Whoa, 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 what the I'm hell is so what? bored. Just tell us what it is. What? Seriously, stop. stop what, what Dr. Mindy is trying to say is that there's a comet headed directly towards Earth. And according to NASA's computers, that object is going to hit the Pacific Ocean at 62 miles due west off the coast of Chile. And then what happens? Like a tidal wave? No. It will be far more catastrophic. There will, there will be mile-high tsunamis fanning out all across the globe. If this comet makes impact, it will have the power of, of, of a billion Hiroshima bombs. There will be magnitude 10 or 11 earthquakes. You're, you're breathing weird. It's, it's, uh, it's making me uncomfortable. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to articulate the science. I know, but it's like so stressful. like trying to like listen. I don't to what... think you understand the gravity of the situation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show an Oscar-winning filmmaker, the writer-director of The Big Short, of Vice, and now of Don't Look Up, an epic disaster movie, a satire, a comedy, a tragedy. Adam McKay. <laughs> Hi, Adam, how are you? I'm good, Robin. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. Now, for those few people who are listening to this who haven't seen your movie, how how do you set it up for people? What is it about? I would say it's a big, ridiculous comedy about two scientists trying to warn the world that a death comet is going to hit. And they're trying to warn a world that is much like the world we live in right now in 2022. Um, so yeah, it's a comedy and then it's got some dramatic, tragic, uh, elements to it as well. 
So your inspiration for this movie, I believe, was climate change. You were reading a book and it suddenly dawned on you what an awful situation humanity's in. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, but I'm just curious to know, why didn't you make a movie about climate change? Why did you turn it into this kind of allegory and turn it into a meteorite strike? Yeah, I had read the UN climate report about four years ago. I had read David Wallace Wells's book, Uninhabitable Earth, which I highly recommend. And I had this moment where I realized the climate crisis, which I always thought was very serious and something we have to deal with, but I always kind of thought it was 50 years away, 80 years away for my grandkids. And I started reading this and going, holy God, this is now. Uh, the models have all been too optimistic and it's impossible to model a system as complex as planet Earth when you talk about turning the heat up the way we're doing it. And I got very scared very fast. And I realized, well, you know, I'm a guy who makes movies, so I got to make a movie. I mean, no matter, you know, if I made sandwiches, I, well, that doesn't quite work. I was going to say <laughs> I would have made a climate crisis sandwich. I guess you could. You could, um, I'm sure. Yeah, it depends on you source your products, isn't it? It's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the way, you're right. You're right. Um, so anyway, um, so I started kicking around ideas and I had a, about five different ideas and some felt overly dramatic. There were some that were kind of thrillers with a twist. And in every case, I, I just kept thinking, I know the audience that will see this and I, I don't know if it's enough. I, I think, you know, we know we can talk to a certain audience. And it was my friend, David Sirota, who's a, a journalist um, uh, and, and a former speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. He and I were commiserating about the lack of coverage of the climate crisis on uh, our mainstream media. And he made an offhanded joke about how it's like the movie Armageddon, only the asteroid's gonna hit and no one cares. And I. I laughed and then for like two weeks, I couldn't shake the idea. I kept thinking about it. And uh, and finally I called him, I was like, David, I think that's the idea. And he kind of laughed at me like, yeah, right. But that was it. I liked that it was a comedy. I liked that it was big and ridiculous. I liked that it wasn't doomsday talk, that it wasn't so dark and shadowy that, that and, and I also thought, if you look at the last 10 years, there haven't been a lot of comedies made. And I think part of that is because the world's so upside down and twisty turny. And I thought one thing maybe we can all agree on, regardless of your political beliefs or your religious beliefs or whatever, is that the world is crazy right now. And uh, so it, it was heartening when we started screening the movie to see, in fact, that was the case, that people across the political divide were laughing at this depiction of the world as a uh, crazy, narcissistic funhouse mirror. It's interesting that this idea of the lack of communication and the failure of people to communi communicate to each other. And I think a big theme in the movie is that these are the facts. What are you going to do about it? And a lot of people just don't accept the facts. And this is what happens with climate change is what happens, I guess, with COVID. I'm interested, this is a, this is a quote from you in, a, in another interview I read with you. You say, 
<clears throat> the film's obviously inspired by the climate crisis, but it's really about how we've just broken and shattered the ways that we talk to each other. I mean, that when you were writing it and when you were filming it, that was front and center in your mind, was it? You know, it was interesting. It was something we discovered as we were making it. I always thought it was directly about the climate crisis. Then we had to shut down production for COVID. Then we, for six months, we couldn't do anything. And we watched as beat after beat in the movie came true. And I remember talking to DiCaprio and Streep and Tyler Perry, and we were all talking about the fact the movie's not really about what the threat is. It's about how we handle the threat. So that ended up becoming the story. And, and if you look at the history of the last 20 years, I mean, it hasn't been a great track record as far as good information being relayed to people, whether you're talking about the Iraq war or the opioid epidemic in the US, predatory lending, the housing collapse. A, a lot of so-called experts were telling us free trade, uh, were telling us that these were uh, moves with no downside, clear choices, no brainers. And they, every one of them proved to be disastrous. Millions of lives were lost. So now we're in this spot where, surprise, surprise, there's a good chunk of the population that doesn't trust the experts. But of course, the, the dark irony of it is that we do need to trust the experts when it comes to certain things, especially the, the climate crisis. So it's, it's very complicated, but I, I really do think one thing we don't talk about enough is that it's, it's after 20, 30, 40 years of fraud from the elites that you're seeing this distrust. And, and they're not crazy. The people that are not trusting the science, I get why they're doing it. I wish they would, because in some cases it's empirical and it's clear, but I'm not surprised by it. But I am surprised by how little we talk about that cause. There's, there's a huge cast, most of them A-list celebrities. Um, one of the interesting characters that comes in quite late in the movie is the um, the Chalamet character, who is this, uh, Timothy Chalamet, who plays this kind of street punk skater dude, who's cool and to him he doesn't believe any of it right he doesn't believe anyone <laughs> and, and this is something i've come across i've been a journalist for decades i've been you know going into schools to teach about fake news and kind of media literacy and of course the cool kids all say yeah they're all thieves you're all liars i don't trust any of you and that's the kind of cool reset button i mean that's a problem isn't it we, on taking any of these issues seriously. We can all have a laugh, but if you want to get that message through to someone who's just cool and doesn't believe anything, I mean, tell us it's, something about that character and that archetype. Yeah, it's really dangerous. I mean, you know, there used to be a common trust with the way we received information, but that common trust has been violated uh, time and time again. And the shame of it is there are people like yourself there are real scientists, there are real journalists who are trying to convey the truth, but it's all so muddied at this point. And, you know, you would talk about media literacy 40 years ago. I mean, media literacy now? I mean, you'd have to do like a, a master's degree in it. You'd have to get your, your PhD to like really see through the layer and layer and layer of misinformation and BS and misdirection. And, and then you throw advertising into the mix. I mean, good Lord. I mean, just 
it is the trickiest time to disseminate what's real and what's not. Uh, it's got to be, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of another time in, in history. I guess in the early 19th century, snake oil was selling pretty well. So probably wasn't the greatest flow of information then either. But um, but yeah, Timothy Chalamet's character represents that. And it's, it, it, I have friends who are like that, who just... You know, they they call it taking the black pill. You know, you can take the red or the blue pill in the matrix. Well, some people just take the black pill, which is everything is cynical. Everything's a lie. And that may be the most destructive road we could ever go down. Tell us about the role of comedy. I mean, you've made lots of silly, funny films, right? In, in your career, I don't mean that in the best possible way. Fun, laugh out loud movies. And I think this is one too. I watched it for the second time, by the way, last night. And it looks a lot more serious the second time because you know the gags are coming. And I think you concentrate more <laughs> on, on the darkness. So I, was, I, was, I felt like I'd be wrung out in a good way. I love the film. Um, but what is the role of comedy? Because you opted to make a really out, this is an outrageous satire. What does that help the message, do you think? I mean, one of the characters in the movie, uh, uh, the host of the, the, the daytime kind of news show, is like, they're annoying the scientists by just making a bit of a joke. So, well, it helps the medicine go down. You know, we keep it light, we keep it fun. How big is this thing? Could it like destroy someone's house? Is that possible? Well, Comet Bibiaski, which is what it will officially be named as somewhere. After her. After yeah, after yeah, yeah. Oh, congratulations. What an honor. Yeah, right, congratulations. It's somewhere between six and nine kilometers across. So it's big. It would damage the the entire planet, not just a house. You know. The entire planet. Okay, well, as it's damaging, will it hit this one house in particular that's right on the coast of New Jersey? It's my ex-wife's house. I need it to be hit. Can no, we make that happen? You and Shelly have a great relationship. No, you stop. Listen, in all fairness. You need to stop. I will, but in all fairness, I actually paid for the house. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, are we, uh, are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right. It helps the medicine go down. Is there a danger you're keeping it light and keeping it fun? Or is actually this a way to help the medicine go down? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there, there's two different, or there's many different types of laughter, entertainment, humor, when Kate Blanchett says, hey, we just keep it light, it helps the medicine go down. She's talking more about sort of a Novocaine. She's talking about a numbing of perception and real feelings. I, I just think when people really laugh, when you see groups of people laugh, it, it is a great thing. I think good things can, can happen. And I'm not talking about like a wry, knowing smile or a nodding like, oh, I see what you're doing. I, I'm not talking about a snicker, a sort of superior snicker. I'm talking about like full abandoned laughter is just, I, I've just never seen it be a bad thing. And, uh, and I think, I, I, I think it also, it, it immediately requires community. It immediately requires that, you know, you be in a group that has some common ground. And yeah, it's just weird the last five, 10 years that there's just not that many comedies made. There's not that many 
kind of giant stand-up comics out there. You know, there used to always be, for 20, 30 years when I was growing up, there was always like five big stand-up comics. And it's just not the case now. Everything's become very niche. Um, and I think in some ways populism became like a dirty word because we've seen populism bent and twisted to the extreme right. It, it can become fascistic pretty quickly, but at its root, populism is really wonderful and powerful. And it's populism is like, you know, how we won World War II. Populism is how we, you know, uh, created uh, the highway system. And although maybe that's not so good now, <laughs> but it's how we created hospitals or you guys, the NHS, that's populism. So I, I think it's very hard for darker forces to fake comedy. It just doesn't work. I've seen them try. And and I do think comedy is an important part of uh, any kind of positive populist movement that's going to start. And, and that's what we tried to do with this movie. And so you've had enough time now to get some reaction from this film. It's been out for several months on Netflix, still watched now. You say it's crossed the political divide. I'm just wondering what... Do audiences understand that it's about climate change? Is it is it inspiring people to do anything about it? What kind of reaction do you have you had? It's it it, it was really something. Yeah, I've never experienced anything like it. Uh, Netflix is a really unique platform in that they basically push a button, and the movie just goes out to hundreds of millions of people, and so. Uh, you know, we made a comedy and, and I'm seeing that it's number one on Netflix in Nigeria, Pakistan, Cambodia, Canada, like Uruguay, like just all across the world. And the cool thing was reading on social media because you can just see it just ticks in every second responses. And you can see them in all these different languages coming up. And there's a translation app, you know, you can use for that. And it was really cool because it was just a level of common sort of reaction that I, I did not expect it to go to that degree. And people really feeling like they were being seen and heard. Uh, the climate scientists, oh my God. I mean, some of the reactions we got from them, they were just like, at last, someone gets what we've been going through. And, and not just the climate scientists, the uh, epidemiologists, scientists in general, it, it was really wonderful. Um, I, I've never had an experience like it. Because it crosses well beyond climate change into all these global risks and global science that we have to listen to and do something about. Um, let me talk about, this is a question my wife's asked me to ask you. Why is the president, who's a pretty bad president, a woman? <laughs> You know what? That just came simply from this. A lot of the best characters you can play are, are crappy, evil, dastardly, ridiculous characters. And in the past, I think there's been a tendency to go, well, I'm not going to cast a woman in this because I don't want to say women are awful. And in this case, I was just like, it's a great role. Let's give it to Meryl Streep. Kate Blanchett, same thing. It's like, I, I think, you know, women can play virtuous characters, they can play horrible characters. I, I just, more and more nowadays, uh, I, I just think that line is blurring, but, uh, but your wife isn't wrong, uh, President Orlean 
is a disaster. I mean, Meryl Streep was so funny. She told me, she's like, I've never played the president in my life. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah. And I'm a terrible president. So um, all I can say, and you can tell your your wife this, uh, is Meryl Streep loved it and just had a blast playing that role. And, and to me, that's the, the best. So how certain is this? There's 100% certainty of impact. Please, don't say 100%. Can we just call it a potentially significant event? Yeah. Yes. But it isn't potentially going to happen. It is going to happen. Exactly. 99.78% to be exact. Oh, great. Okay, so it's not 100%. Well, scientists never like to say 100%. Call it 70% and let's just, let's move on. But it's not even close to 70%. You cannot go around saying to people that there's a 100% chance that they're going to die. You know? It's just nuts. And we should get some of our scientists on this, you know, no offense, but you're just two people that walked in here with... Dr. Oglethorpe. Dr. Ogilvy, yeah. You have kept up at night with worry about climate change, climate change angst. You did what you do, which is not making sandwiches, making movie. You made a movie in, about climate change or metaphorically, I guess, about climate change. Is that it now? Is your job done? And have you, you know, exercised your climate angst or are you still kept awake at night? What else could you possibly do about it? Yeah, I think I'm done. I think I've done everything I could do. Uh, I've built, I guess for lack of a better term, I built a mountain fortress uh, in the Andes with multiple tennis courts, uh, squash courts, basketball courts. I'm going to go up there with my 14 children, my seven grandkids, my progeny, as I call them. And uh, we're just going to go, you know, grill steaks. Uh, <laughs> no, no, definitely not done. Uh, it's going to be a long, you know, it's going to require everyone doing little parts. Uh, you know, I just read this thing the other day that was from a group called Climate Analytics that does modeling for temperature change. And they said by the year uh, 2030, in eight years, half of our days will be one every 100 year heat events. And this is one of those stories I read that I did not see in the mainstream media. I kept checking it, is this credible? I talked to the, some of the scientists we know and they were like, yeah, it's credible. It's like, oh my God, like, do we understand what that will do to the power grid with, you know, wet bulb events to I, uh, an unfathomable. So it, it's gonna be a, a, it's gonna get bigger and bigger. Um, I, I still think there's a lot of people that think it's an issue as opposed to the overwhelming shadow that covers every other issue. Uh, but that's going to that's going to melt away in the next couple of years. Um, could just ask you, I'm interested in podcasting. I know you've had some experience on it. Um, are there any podcasts that you love and you recommend? I've just listened to actually the podcast about the making of the film called The Last Movie Ever Made which is a lot of fun because it talks about how on earth you made this massive film in lockdown. Um, but are there, are there any podcasts that you listen to that you'd love and you would recommend? Oh, I am such a podcast junkie. Um, uh, my wife makes fun of me because every night I go to sleep listening to a podcast. So I made a podcast during the pandemic. I did one called Death at the Wing. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's there's this weird thing in the NBA where 
all these young players died in the 80s and 90s, and it intersected with like a political shift in our country. So it's almost like an Adam Curtis story, but it's about basketball. Um, but I'm really proud of it. I really love it. So that that's a plug for something I've done. But the one I love is called Fall of Civilizations. Have you heard of this? No. Uh, it's a story in here from the UK. I think his last name is Cooper. Oh, it's incredible. He goes through uh, like these amazing civilizations like the Khmer Empire, uh, the Byzantine Empire, and he tracks them. Uh, he starts with finding their ruins and then he tells the whole story of how they came about and then why they fell apart. And I cannot get enough of it. I was talking to the uh, filmmaker Barry Jenkins at a screening we did, and I offhandedly mentioned it. And Barry was like, are you kidding me? That is the greatest podcast ever. Um, so I love that. And then I listened to, uh, I think it's one of the best shows in the States. It's called The Dan Levitard Show, and it's ostensibly a sports show. But he talks about race and politics and history, and then it's goofy and silly. It's There's no show like it. So those are two that are on my front burner, but I love podcasts. Great. I'll check them out. Final silliest question of all, and I, I don't know if you'll even know what I'm talking about. Bob Monkhouse, at the start of the film, there's a joke by a comedian, I'm guessing most viewers of Netflix have never heard of, English or British people of my generation will know that name very well, but as the last comedian I expected to see quoted in a Hollywood movie, how did, how did Bob Monkhouse make his way to Don't Look Up? You know, it was funny, I found that quote and it was attributed to a friend of mine, Jack Handy, who's one of the great comedy writers of all time. He wrote Deep Thoughts, Toontz's The Driving Cat, Unfrozen Caveman Lore. I mean, just literally one of the great comedy writers ever and a lovely, lovely person. And it was attributed to him everywhere on the internet. I saw the quote like 40 different places. And I thought, well, this is great because I thought the quote was perfect to open the movie. Do you remember and the I joke? Thought, well, Can you tell us? What, what's that? Could you remember the joke? Could you tell us? Oh yeah, of course. Um, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather and not screaming in terror like his passengers. That was the joke. And I just thought, well, that's the whole movie. And so I thought, how cool. And then I got a letter from Jack Candy. He's like, I didn't write that. So we had to go on this big search and Kevin Messick, our producer, let it. And it came down to two comics. There's a guy named Mike Lee in the States, and then it was Monkhouse here in the UK. So we had to dig in and dig in, and Netflix was like, it's, it seems like it's Monkhouse. The odds are it's Monkhouse. Um, so I was like, all right, credit it to him. But we actually switched that credit. The movie opened with Jack Handy as the attributed writer. And the one nice thing with streaming is we were able to just flip it. Jack Candy was happy, and hopefully the Monkhouse estate is proud. I'm sure they are. That's, I mean, there's just so much in the movie. That's just one curiosity there. It's been an absolute joy and a privilege to meet you. Thanks for joining us on Radio Davos, uh, Adam McKay. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. 
You can find lots of information about climate change and risks from space in the World Economic Forum's Risks Report 2022. We did a podcast on it a couple of weeks ago, and it's all available at the website weforum.org. Don't look up. The movie is available to watch on Netflix, thanks to them and to Adam McKay. If you'd like to comment on anything in this show or in the wider world of podcasts in general, please join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a rating and a review. This episode was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.